Welcome to the Wire Bank Sucks Podcast. My name is James Bach, and I'm here to tell you why your bank does, in fact, suck very much. Of course, earlier this week, we had a podcast about Brian Moynihan's CNBC interview with Jim Cramer, and it actually became one of the most downloaded podcasts that I've had. In four short days, we've seen numbers that have rivaled podcasts that have been available for three months on my on my thread, and I'm really thankful and appreciative that you um, listened to the podcast. You actually asked me some questions about it as well, which is really, really cool. I'm really proud to say that um, it was one of the best ones I've done because of the use of the interview itself and breaking down piece by piece what he had um, going on in the interview, which was all, it was all over the wall. And it just struck me that he he's not as comfortable on camera as most CEOs should be. And I think it leads to very entertaining TV, to be quite honest with you. So as I mentioned, it was one of the more successful podcasts that I've had. And um, I'm really excited about that. I'm really glad that a lot of people are uh, tuning in for the first time. So if this is you know one of the first times that you're listening to me, thank you so much for listening. Um, my name is James Baca. I am a 13-year uh, former Bank of America employee, was a manager, and I started my career as a part-time teller whenever I was in college. So I have a lot of experience with Bank of America, but of course, um, I've you know added to my knowledge with other big banks. And just you know working in the business environment has helped me a lot with my project that I have going on here. Um, of course, I promised you a, a second breakdown of a second interview that Brian Moynihan had with um, Fox Business Network, and um, I did record that. It will air, actually, uh, the beginning of next week. I, I didn't want to do back-to-back television interviews because the first one, the CNBC one, was uh, an hour and 20 minutes, and that's probably my max time for podcasts. It was a pretty long one, and I want to make sure that there's sufficient time. That way you can see the subtle you know, nuances of the Fox Business Network one and understand what he's saying there because it's actually a really intriguing interview, and it'll still be relevant on Monday, believe you me. Um, today's podcast is going to um, have one caller, and we'll have that in the second segment. But the reason why I kind of wanted to do this podcast before the Fox Business Network one was because I noticed a very interesting post whenever I was doing uh, my you know Twitter search for Bank of America issues. And it was from the National Iranian American Council. And they are a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization advancing interests of Iranian American community. And they had posted on Twitter a letter that they had written to Bank of America about policies that were going on with um, accounts that are opened and maintenance, quote-unquote, I'll use a Bank of America term, um, by Bank of America for these um, Iranian citizens, whether they're students or not. And being a seller and a sales manager within the last several years, from basically September 2011 to August of 2018, and living in a college town, I'm very familiar with the process. In fact, I became the opener of these accounts in my branch because um, of the knowledge that I had in opening them up. And this letter really hit close to home just because of my experience with that. And I, I think the interesting thing about it is, you know, it's a very controversial topic you know, we live in a in a world now where everyone takes sides on everything. I don't I don't 
want to do a podcast that's going to be polarizing to anyone because honestly you know the wire bang sucks podcast is for both sides of any political issue because there's reasons why you should not like a certain bank or banks um no matter where you come from because there's always something that just rubs you the wrong way and i'm here to kind of point it out that's the whole point of this podcast but this one really matters to me and and it's something that i you know took to heart whenever i was there Towards the end of my tenure, I started to take offense at the actions of my company and how they took care of these customers. And, you know, a year removed from working at a bank, I can tell you that seeing this letter, and I mean, this was posted, you know, in July of 2019, it gave me some really, you know, scary flashbacks of what these customers are going through. And also what the bank was putting them through. And not to mention what banks are putting their bankers through. And I'm going to give you that perspective as well. So I really wanted to jump on top of this. So after this brief promotional consideration, we're going to get into the weeds. And we're going to talk about a really serious topic that no matter what you think about immigration or international students or just, you know, people in general, just people in general, you really want to listen to this because it can impact you. And um, honestly, the way that your bank, particularly Bank of America in this case, treats you, it's a really serious topic, my friends. So after this brief promotional consideration, we're going to break it down. So please, please stick around. All right, we are back. So, of course, I've mentioned my background a hundred times on this podcast and on Twitter. Being a 13-year former employee of Bank of America, both as a teller and manager, I've been around. You know, More than a third of my life was dedicated to working for Bank of America. And it's something, at the end of the day, I was proud to work for that company because of the chance they gave me when I was young, the chance to help me develop into a manager, and the skills that they gave me. You know, sales skills are still important to me because I got advertising to sell on this podcast. I got, you know, books to sell. I got, you know, Patreon to sell. So I'm really proud of those skills that were honed working at Bank of America. And, you know, there's a lot of positives, including meeting members of the community and everything that I'm really proud of to this day. So, you know, there was a lot of good with my experience at Bank of America, but there's a few things that rub me the wrong way. Uh, very, very, you know, and it's probably 60% good, but the 40% that's bad were really bad. And today's topic is something that I feel really, really um, strongly about. As I mentioned, I originally come from Socorro, New Mexico, which is home to New Mexico Tech University. And it's a town of 8,000 people. It is not a big town. You know, it's four stoplights on the main drag, and there's no stoplights on the side streets. So it's a really, really small town. But it's a college town, nonetheless. In this town of 8,000, there's a university there, a really, really good one, that has about 2,000 students. You know, it's mostly engineering. It's mostly computer science. You know, all the nerdy stuff that I was not good at in high school. You know, I'm... uh, geography and political science type of person myself so you know new mexico tech my hometown's college was not for me but it's uh it's a really egghead college and i was always proud to have that college in my hometown so you know growing up i i didn't really get integrated into it because i just saw it as a place where my my uncles and my grandparents worked and it was just a job to them so it wasn't really a college it was just where my uncles worked and i took a couple of classes there once i graduated high school but it really wasn't for me so i went elsewhere for college 
And I took a job um, at Bank of America in Socorro, New Mexico, December 2005. One of the more interesting things that I saw once I became a teller was how diverse the the clientele was at Bank of America. And, of course, I had never worked at another bank before, so maybe it was similar in my town, maybe it wasn't. But, you know, you would see, you know, people from all over the world. You would see people from India, Pakistan. Um, we had a lot of Chinese students that went to New Mexico Tech University. Um, you know, people came from Mexico. People came from, you know, other parts of Europe. A lot of Russians, I still have... Um, a Russian friend, his name is Onor, he actually lives in Houston, Texas, and he's a big shot at an oil company making a lot of money, and I'm really proud of him, knowing him for 15 years, you know. Um, but of course, anyone from, you know, the, the part of the world where it's been a topic of discussion the last 15 years, if not the last 50 years, is, is, is something that I'm proud of too, because I've met so many people from Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and, and today's topic is Iran, so... Meeting these students, they're such nice people. Like honestly, you know, Kuwaitis as well. A lot of a lot of Kuwaiti customers of mine uh, in both branches that I worked at. Um, but for all those folks that 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 were there, really really nice people, and sharp. Okay, when you go to school to pursue your master's or your doctorate at a school like that, you are a very smart person. I I fancy myself an intelligent person, but you know. These guys, they run circles all over me, and, I'm, and it's really cool to meet someone who, who is that much smarter than you. I, you know, it's very rare that I that I run into that, and I always did with them. But it was always great conversation, and they 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 smile, they have a good time. They're so extroverted, you know. They they want to talk to you. They like to chuckle. You know, it's it's a conversation that most Americans don't have, and I got to have them several times a day as a teller, and then later on as a banker. So I always had an affinity for my international student customers because every year there'd be a new batch of them and you'd get to learn about them and they'd ask you questions and, you know, I'd ask questions too. I was naturally a curious person. And, you know, being from another country, it that didn't scare me into meeting people. And a lot of Americans, it does scare people whenever they're not familiar with, uh, you know, someone from another country or even from another state for that matter you know i i live in a state where you know new mexico a lot of the times is confused as a country and it's not it's the you know 47th state of the union you know a lot of people don't know their geography and we always get into that new mexico mexico debate anyways you know running into all these students over the years has just been really really cool i've made so many friends i've gotten so many gifts and and the one thing that I learned once I became a salesperson was a lot of um, international students, they kind of stick together, so they travel in bunches. So if I did right by, you know, an Iranian student, he would tell his fellow Iranian students that were there at the university or any of his colleagues, hey, go to Bank of America because this guy will open your account for you. His name is James. And I would see my business card be passed around, and it was really cool because... I, I know two things. I know that I was going to have a good conversation for maybe up to an hour in helping them get their finances set up. I know that I would get a decent sell out of it, meaning that, you know, a checking and savings account and even possibly a credit card, you know, I would get. So I would get the full gamut of sales opportunities from these students. And I was successful because of it and I would make a lot of bonus money because of it. 
and uh, you know not not to not to get too specific but this is not a generalization by any means this is the truth it costs money to be an international student and to come to a university in new mexico a lot of money tens of thousands of dollars so i know any stipend that they would get any you know scholarships that they would get any cash that they would bring into the branch would be significant you know there was times where i would open accounts for any student from any country and i'd get eight thousand dollars in cash in perfectly crisp hundred dollar bills you know i i was i was proud to say that i would bring this money in so whenever you know the semester would start I'd say hey i had 10 accounts and i had seventy five thousand dollars in new deposits you know it was really proud of me to say that but it wasn't me that did it. They, they were going to open the account anyway because they needed to, to put the money in. So I, I knew August and January, the semester start dates from the universities and the towns that I worked at were really important to me because that was my bread and butter. I knew I could make a heck of a lot of bonus money just doing a good job for these guys. I, I knew it and I welcomed them in open arms anytime that I can help them, particularly um, Iranian customers just because I was so... I was so familiar with them, and and I always had a good rapport in both branches that I worked at because they were really great to deal with. And that's honestly one of the things I miss about working at Bank of America because I don't have these conversations anymore, at least on a face-to-face -face level with a lot of people um, because, you know, I'm working from home. I'm not in a bank branch. I'm not around hundreds of people to have conversations about finance, so I don't get to have these conversations anymore. And it's it's honestly psychologically it's really hard I, I talk into a microphone because i think it's um very therapeutic for me it's a business opportunity but at the same time i'm still getting to talk about the thing that i love which is finance and banks and whatnot and i kind of put it in the rearview mirror for several months occasionally it would pop up and i'd get a a tweet that i would respond to from someone from iran or someone, you know, someone from another country feeling that they didn't have a great experience at Bank of America or another bank. And I would educate them on why I think that was and what was going on. And it didn't really hit me, like, full force until a couple of days ago, until um, July 23rd. When just searching for Bank of America, as I always do on Twitter... I ran into a tweet from the National Iranian American Council, the NIAC, and their Twitter handle is at NIAC Council. So NIA Council is what it is. And they had a, a pretty good sized thread of uh, several tweets, and it was discussing um, Iranian Americans and bank accounts. And the, the the thing with it is it's it's interesting because they know they know what's going on within within their little circle you know iranian americans are familiar with it it's it's like being any other ethnicity in this country i'm a hispanic american and there are certain things that you only deal with whenever you're in that in that genre of person i guess in a in a weird way of saying it so they know but it's it's getting to the point, and, and this is a Bank of America-specific conversation for Iranian Americans because I know this up and down, that once they posted this tweet thread, I had to get involved in it. And this is why I'm doing this podcast is because of this Twitter thread. 
because it it hits so close to home it reminded me of the last um 24 to 36 months of my tenure at bank of america and how difficult it was to deal with iranian american accounts not because of them but because of bank of america so this was july 23rd the national iranian american council said for years iranian americans have had their bank accounts shuttered as a result of their iranian national origin heritage this form of discrimination is damaging, throwing individuals into financial limbo while they wait to see if and when the bank will release their life savings. That's one tweet. Second tweet. Banks cite this as precautionary efforts to abide by U.S. sanctions that prohibit individuals from operating bank accounts in Iran. While not technically required by law, many banks judge that the risk, listen to that word, the risk, and we'll get to that, of running afoul of sanctions outweighs the risk of engaging in discrimination. That's why the NIAC is petitioning the U.S. Treasury for a formal rule change to license Americans to operate bank accounts from Iran. We believe that we can change this rule and end the bank's discriminatory actions against our community. So um, there's a link for a letter here, and I'll, I'll just read it. It's, it's a few paragraphs, so it's not going to be too long. And it's a letter, an open letter from the NIAC here. And it says, for years, Iranian Americans have had their bank accounts shuttered as a direct result of the national origin and heritage. This is a form of discrimination that's profoundly damaging, throwing individuals into financial limbo while they wait to see if and when their bank will release their life savings. Banks cite this as precautionary efforts to abide by U.S. sanctions to prohibit individuals from operating bank accounts in Iran. While not technically required by law, many of these banks judge the risk of running afoul outweighs the risk of engaging in discrimination. A significant majority of complaints we have received have come as a result of actions from Bank of America. Despite multiple efforts since 2014 by NIAC to engage Bank of America to fix their policies, and I mentioned five years, and 2014 is five years, Bank of America continues to engage in account closures of Iranian Americans. NIC sent a letter clarifying the sanctions do not obligate them to close bank accounts of individuals ordinarily resident in the United States while holding the option to, uh, holding the option open to take legal action to protect the interest of Iranian Americans and bring an end to their discriminatory treatment of Bank of America. And the letter is uh, a pretty significantly long letter and it's from Jamal Abdi, the president of the National Iranian American Council. And... The reason why I read the statement twice was because there were some things in the tweets that weren't kind of covered. And, you know, they mentioned closures of the accounts by Iranian Americans. And that's that's where really I, I have those horrible flashbacks of what was going on while I was opening accounts for Bank of America. It, it, it's, it's something that stresses me out even thinking about it because... It's just horrible. I've never seen a group of people, and, and I'm Mexican-American, and I live 35 miles away from the Mexican border. And, you know, some people will say that, you know, Mexican nationals, permanent residents, or even American citizens that are just Mexican origin feel that discriminatory thing. Yeah, they do, but not as bad as the Iranian-Americans, and the Iranian students for that matter. I have seen just horrible cases of accounts being closed, accounts being frozen, funds not being released because of the risk of these accounts. And and it got to the point where at the end of my tenure at Bank of America, which ironically enough was in August, 
right in the middle of you know the the first week of the semester i was opening you know student accounts left and right the week that i got fired it 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 was quite apparent that there was just something else going on with bank of america and these type of accounts and 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 i i can't stomach thinking about how it happened so i would open up maybe I'm going to say, you know, Las Cruces is a college town of about 110,000 people. I'm going to say 10 to 12 accounts for Iranian Americans per semester. You know, and yeah, they'd come in periodically in between semesters. But typically in August and January, 10 to 12. Not, not, a, not a huge amount, but enough to meet a lot of people. So I would, I would see these customers come in. And honestly, it's it was the opposite of kind of profiling, I guess, because a lot of people say profiling, you know, is bad, which I agree. But honestly, if I see college students and they're from from outside the U.S., I know two things: that they're going to have a significant deposit to open the account, which is going to help me and my bonus. And two, there are more. Um, open to getting a savings account open as well as a checking account and they'll be interested in getting credit cards because let's be frank a lot of these people who are you know coming from overseas to the u.s to get you know master's degrees or doctorates or whatever they're and i've said it before they're not they're not going to be broke they're going to make a lot of money in whatever field that they choose you know should they decide to stay in the u.s if you're if you're an engineer you know, eighty thousand dollars is low. You know, if you're working for NASA, you know, hundred thousand dollars is is pretty much guaranteed. So you would have people who would go into jobs and they have a ton of money. And yeah, the introduction of the account is only where I get the sales credit and the the revenue for that. But it's cool to create a preferred customer. And I knew that these people, you know, a couple of years down the road, were going to be fine. You know, school's hard. School's hard for anyone. But getting out of school and finding a job that's going to pay them a ton of money i know that they're going to have tens of thousands in their bank accounts i know that they're going to want to do a mortgage or they're going to want to buy a nice car and you know they're going to have children and they're going to want to set up savings accounts and you know merrill lynch and all these things for them to set up you know for the future so i knew that i would be planting a seed for things years to come but what I started to notice maybe about three years ago, 2016, maybe 2015, was that Bank of America just started clamping down on opening accounts for Iranians. You know, even Chinese students didn't have it as hard. Chinese students would bring their Chinese passport and their student ID. I'd open an account, like nothing. I wouldn't have to do anything at that point. And like I said, I'm not going to get into the political nature of all this stuff because it's beyond me. I'm not a, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm savvy in watching the news and, you know, I know the past history and the current history of what's going on. But it doesn't matter when it comes to this conversation because uh, the people in front of me and my desk at the bank had nothing to do with what's going on in the world. And that, that that's why I felt, I feel so strongly about this because... I, I'm not enforcing rules. I'm having rules enforced on me in order to open accounts um, for these clients. And and what I saw and what I experienced opening these accounts the last few years was just another level. So 
if you're not familiar with a lot of the ways that banks kind of control risk, one of the things that comes up is um, OFAC. And if you've never heard of OFAC, it's the Office of Foreign Assets Control. And the Wikipedia summary of it is it's a financial intelligence and enforcement agency of the Treasury Department. It administers and enforces economic and trade sanctions in support of U.S. national security and foreign policy objectives. So every time you're working at a bank, especially Bank of America, you have auditors and they ask you questions about OFAC. You take OFAC training about who you can open accounts for and who you can't. For instance, we couldn't open accounts for people in Cuba for the longest time. I literally opened up one Cuban account in my whole time there, and that's when the Cuban sanctions kind of got loosened a couple years ago. So it was it was amazing to see what you couldn't do for people of certain countries, no matter what's going on with them. So, you know, one of them that's always been on OFAC's list is Iran. And I understand, okay, I understand why... They got put on there. I understand the the thought of it. Although I don't agree with it, I understood the thought of it. So, you know, whenever you become a salesperson at the bank, they say, well, this is what you can do. You can set up an account, but you got to do this and you got to do that. And you must have this, you know, type of passport, this type of document. And you must get their physical address in Iran and then their current address here in the U.S. And they must be residing in the U.S. to operate this account. One of the points of contention of the letter, by the way. So I knew the process. I knew how to do it. In fact, I knew it so far up and down that my managers and the other salespeople wouldn't even mess around with these accounts. Say, hey, that's that's a James account. And I'd get the business for it just because I, you know what, I took the training. I knew how to do this right. But... This OFAC thing started to really clamp down with Bank of America, particularly a few years ago, like I said, once the word, the dirty four-letter word that I call risk started kind of creeping into the conversation at the bank. And to me, risk just meant they just don't want to bother with the possible consequences of something. But they use that term very liberally, so it happened to a lot of people, whether they're U.S. citizens or not. You know, they just say, oh, risk, yeah, we're closing your account out due to risk. It, it didn't even, the words didn't even mean anything. That was just a way of getting out of any relationship with the banks. So, you know, risk management came in with OFAC for um, Iranian customers. And around 2015, 2016, this is what I experienced. And I don't care if I'm talking out of turn um, from the Bank of America procedure of doing this. These customers sat in front of me while I helped them. They saw what I had to do. I explained what I had to do while I was doing it. So I'm not saying something that's probably not already known by thousands of people, particularly with the NIAC for that matter. So when I had opened the account, I'd ask for, I'd ask for you know two forms of identification, particularly. And we're just going to say that they're students at this point. So they're students from Iran, and you know usually you know. People are getting their master's or doctorates. They're like my age. They're in their early to mid thirties. So, you know, they're not eighteen-year-old kids. These are you know people who are already educated and they're just wanting to further their education. So they know the processes and everything. And most people who you know are international, they know the processes of needing passports and you know certain types of visas and certain documents in order to conduct business. So, you know. As Americans, we may not be as hip to it, but other countries know this up and down because they have to. So I'd ask for the identification. You know, they would have running passport. They'd have their um, New Mexico State University student ID that they got. 
that's two primary forms of ID there. I'm able to accept those. And a lot of times they have this document called an I-20. And the I-20 is um, important for people that are going to school in the U.S., particularly if they're from another country. So basically, the Form I-20 is for um, student and exchange visitor program certified schools. And, and basically, it's this document that says James Baca is from the country of, he was born on this date, he is approved to go to school at this school from August of 2019 to August of 2023. And this document is valid for that time. And then you have to renew it if, you know, something, well, if you're there longer, you have to get another document that says that you're going to be there longer. And these are things that... People in academia know. I'm, I'm sure my wife is familiar with the I-20 form because she works, you know, for the university. I'm familiar with it because I had to take trainings on it. So I know what to look for. I know what's needed there. So, you know, my students would bring the I-20. They'd bring their their passport and they'd bring their student ID. And I'm off to the races. I'm, I'm setting up accounts. I'm getting this done. The, the hardest thing was whenever someone was married and they would have their wife and they wanted their wife on their account. So you'd have to ask for documentation there and then, and I'll get to the phone call in a second, you'd have to talk to the person on the phone and explain who this other person is, why they're on the account, why are they not a student yet the other person is, and why should they be on this student's account. It was just a mess and it's just, it's just ridiculous how Bank of America made it complicated. So... This procedure started a few years ago where literally I would be account opening, filling out names and addresses, and then this little pop-up would happen on the computer, and it would say, you picked a country that is OFAC-related or something. Like, I don't remember the, the verbiage of it. And it says, please call 1-800-whatever to get a verification code. So I'm literally calling a number. The, the computer pops up a phone number that is not the normal what they call one call at Bank of America, which is the the internal customer service line. It's a totally different it's a totally different system. And I'm guessing that once you call that number, it forwards it to a department that specializes in risk management and possibly OFAC sanctioned countries. So I would call this number and then I'd have to give my security code. Yeah, my name is James Baca. My security code is one two three four. I mean it changed all the time. So it was a one time use code. And then, yes, I have a couple of customers who are looking to open an account. And this is what's, like, awkward. When you're a customer and you're seeing this guy just, you know, making a weird look on his face like I am probably, and having to give their personal information out to someone over the phone that they can't see, it is kind of awkward. Yes, I have two customers, and they're from Iran, and they need to open a checking account. Yes, they're going to fund it. Yes, with cash. Oh, yeah, that's great. Okay, so what was that? And then I'm writing down something. Okay, so I need to do... Okay, sounds good. And there would be times that I would ask the person on the phone, Hey, can I can I just mute you for a second so I can let my customers know what's going on? And they would get so offended by that over the phone, the the risk management, OFAC, whatever. They'd say, no, 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 Um, you know, let's finish up here, and then you can talk to them, whatever. I'm like, okay... Some people were cool, and they would let me mute it. And then I would say, okay, so in order to open the account, you know, there's a couple of things. Whenever you're an international student, I never pointed out the country. 
I would always say, you know, sometimes you're international, there's this other level that I just have to get approved on, and um, I need to do a couple things. So here's what I had to do. I had to get their passports, and I'd have to make photocopies of them, and which, which was a pain. It's hard whenever you have one of those gigantic copy machines, and you don't get it, like, right, you know, you don't... You don't level it right on the glass and sometimes it would come out crooked and then you had to do it again i would have to make photocopies front and back of the the ids so you know the iran the iranian portion of it I had to make a photocopy of the front and photocopy of the back and then the student id same thing front and back like why do you want a copy of the black strip on the student id i don't know i, I have no idea why they want it and then the i-20 the student document that shows that they're a student of this university, I would have to make a, a front and back copy, you know, applicable on that as well. So, you know, you think making copies of IDs, well, I don't do that for any other customer. I don't do that for U.S. citizens or anything like that. I, I don't. We don't. So that was really one of the times where we didn't, you know, have to do something like that, but we had to for Iranians. So that's not all. That's not all. So I'd make these copies. I'd have to go back in to to the you know my office to the phone and say, okay, yeah, I, I I did what you needed. I made a couple copies of things, and then they would say, um, okay, so two things, James. We need you to put the list to list the country of where they're from on the right hand corner. You have to write down what type of accounts you're opening up for them. So you have to basically know what you're opening before you make the call, which is the backwards way of doing it at Bank of America. You're supposed to um, have the conversation about setting up the profile and then get into the sales portion of it, then fulfill it. But I had to fulfill before I entered the information. It made no sense. What type of accounts they want. And you had to put the date. You had to put your bank ID. And I had to put my bank ID number on there. And I had to list how many pages I had. So if it was eight pages, I had to put one of eight, two of eight, three, and so forth. So I had to put this in the top right-hand corner. And they'd also give me this, this security code, this like approval code that I had to write on all the documents. So if it was one, two, three, four, five, six, I had to write it legibly on the right-hand corner. And I remember the rules because it has to be on the right-hand corner. And it has to be no more than a quarter inch away from the the top right hand it was so stupid like it was so specific it was like why the hell do they care so much about that so went ahead and wrote down all this stuff including the security code and i scanned it in and i freaking waited on the phone for 20 to 30 minutes okay 20 to 30 minutes just waiting for them to approve and i'm like what the hell are they needing to approve you know if i'm signing my name and i could potentially get fired for opening this account because i had to put my bank id on there what are they looking at on the IDs? Do they have some database that they're putting all this through or what? It was just so weird how awkward it was. And I had to make conversation you know, with people that I just met about why I'm taking two hours of their time to open an account. Hated it. 99% of the time I get an approval. Very rarely, and I mean maybe it happened twice, where I didn't get an approval so I couldn't open the account. I get the approval and I go to account opening and I get this done. And then they said, oh, you're all set, James. Okay, thank you. And then you hang up with these idiots on the phone. So you open the accounts. You get it all 
all done and you have them sign the signature cards and there's all these documents you know for tax withholding and all this stuff that comes out whenever you're an international student you have them sign it but me being as paranoid as I was about losing my job I had to make front and back copies of those documents and I would write all that country information on those documents and I'd fax it over to that same place I hated to do that because I'm like well I don't want to get fired by some technicalities like, oh, you didn't send, you know, page 13 to 14, so you're in violation of whatever. It made me paranoid as a banker, so it made me hate, like, opening these accounts. And I love the people, but it made me not want to open these accounts because they were so time-consuming. It literally ate up a third of my day, and I would lose other accounts in the process, which it's a, it's a me problem and not a, a customer problem, so I don't I don't care at that point. So I opened the accounts, I had to do all this stuff, but at the same time, you're just there and you're like, what, why is there so much scrutiny on these accounts? I mean, this guy's a student, he has a student ID for gosh sakes. I don't know why, okay, and, and that's the thing, is like, I don't understand why they do it. So, you know, the first part of this is basically, the, the thing that I hated the most was having to send those documents over and put my bank ID and had to put this little security code and all that. These aren't on file. Like, I couldn't see these documents that I scanned to whatever department. So I couldn't see basically all the stuff that I submitted, which I could see pretty much everything that I submit through fax on there. So where does it go? Why are they holding this information? Bank of America is so hardcore about holding customer information and making sure it's secure and, and all this junk. And they literally just have this file just full of Iranian-American, you know, account numbers and ID numbers and passport numbers that they're, they're just hanging on to. Why? Like, what's the point of that? It made no sense to me, and it just made me feel paranoid about what are they what are they looking for exactly, you know? Because we did this procedure for no no other person. There was no other person or nationality that I did it for except for Iranians really just weirded me out and I just didn't feel right about it so that part just rubbed me the wrong way but like I said once you get to the having to wait and having this stupid department just kind of parse whatever you sent to them and they'd ask you questions that you didn't know and I was like why did they choose New Mexico State University I, I have no idea why why should I ask them that it's none of my business why and you know it would just be an awkward conversation just me just look they're just looking at me on the phone and that's awkward enough. And you have to do that for an hour? Just ridiculous. So, you know, getting into the, the weeds of this conversation, we're about halfway through the process. So I'm going to take a brief promotional consideration, and then we'll come back with the rest of the story. So please stick around. All right, and we are back. So once the account was open, I would never see a lot of customers again, okay? So not just, you know, from Iran or whatever. You know, people that you knew that were going to do mobile deposit or ATM deposits, direct deposits. Maybe they work, you know, nights and then they sleep during the day. Or maybe they work all day and they, don't, they can't make it to the branch. I knew that I wouldn't see some customers again. So I'd always have a joke saying, hey, since I'm never going to see you again, it was a pleasure meeting you and have a good life. You know, I would just joke around like that. And i give them a business card saying, well, if anything does go wrong, here's my card. I'm here all the time. I'd be happy to help with that. I would put myself out on a limb for my customers because, hey, they're the ones that were literally putting money into my pocket, and I'm really happy for that. So, you know, with a lot of my customers, I never would see them again. However, you know, the percentage of Iranian-Americans and Iranian students that I would help, recidivism, I guess, of, of them having to come back into my office to deal with all these things in regards to, 
their nationality or their documents was you know exponentially higher than any other any other group of people so there were times where i would have customers that i opened the accounts for a week before and they say you know my my bank account just stopped working i, I tried to pay a bill online and didn't let me try to use my debit card and didn't let me use it so i don't know what's going on and then I'd get their debit card, I'd type it up, and then it would have this big red alert saying, please call 1-800-whatever immediately. And I would just see that and go, Ugh, I know what's going on here. So I would call, and then I would get this weird thing saying, um, yeah, so our customers here, just their account stopped working, and I actually opened this account for them six days ago, and I just want to know what's going on because they're not able to use it. And they said, well, we had an issue with their identification. So I was wondering if you can have them provide um, their passports, their student IDs, and their I-20 again to resubmit. And I would just be like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, they don't have this stuff. They're customers of mine now, and the debit card is good as gold. I remember them from six days ago, you know. So I say, um, they don't have any of that. Well, we can't reopen the account until until we have that documentation. We want to make sure it's valid. And I would get pissed on the phone. I would say, I looked at it. It was valid. It was in my hands. I made the photocopies. I sent it off to that fax number during account opening. And I put things on the right-hand corner, that old code. I was like, I don't have the code on me, but you should be able to locate it, right? Yeah, but we need to resubmit it again to re-verify. <sighs> okay. So now I have to break the news to my customers that, oh, yeah, Bank of America wants the same exact stuff again. A week later because I don't know why and they wouldn't have it so guess what they had to leave and they'd have to bring it back and I'd have to call again and I would have to get an approval and all this stuff again I'd have to make copies and put the little code and put all the and now I'd have to put the account numbers of the accounts and I open you know four three nine zero one two three four five and I had to put all this James Bach assign it and send it then I had to wait on hold again for them to approve it most of the time, I would say, you know, nearly unanimously, they would reopen the account. So they say, so they say, yeah, just let your customers know that the account is reopened and uh, they'll be able to conduct business within one business day. It takes a while for the freeze to come off or whatever. So just let them know that. So I get off the phone and say, okay, so everything's fine. I do apologize about that. Not sure what's going on, but um, here's your card back. And um, they did say that it will be midnight tonight, that everything will be fine again. And they would leave. Next morning rolls around. Let's just say I go in at 9.15 in the morning, 15 minutes after the bank opens. I walk in, and there's those same two customers, the two Iranian students sitting in the lobby waiting to talk to me. And before I even logged into my computer, I knew what the hell was going on. I knew the Bank of America didn't open their account again. So I would log in, sit down. I won't even have time to put my stuff away. and say, hey, come on in. Let's take a look and see what's going on. Look up their account. It still has that frozen note on there. And then they said, well, yeah, no, it, it, and then I call Bank of America. It takes a day, but sometimes it can take up to three days. So is it one day or is it three? What, which one is it? Well, you know, sometimes we're backed up and we can't get to all of them in time. So this and that, blah, 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 blah. So now I have to tell my customers, like, well, it might be another day or two. They said they are backlogged and unfortunately they can't reopen everything. Okay, and and 
you know, my customers would see me and believe me, and I wasn't lying to them. I was telling them the truth. I felt I was being lied to, but, you know, I, I was telling them the way that I heard it. So let's just say a day or two later, I go back, to, you know, go back to work, and those customers are back again saying, well, I called, and they said that my account's active, but apparently my card's not working. So then I type in their card number, and it would bring up their account still, even if it was closed. And then it would say, card closed on, and it was whatever day that they put the freeze on there. Because once you freeze an account, and you freeze out a debit card, it would block out, and it would close. So now, this card that they have is useless, meaning that they can't access the money that they have in their account, which means I have to reorder another freaking debit card. So I have to open up, you know, a new debit card, give it to them, that way they can get some money out. And I would have to destroy the other one, and they'd get another card supposedly in six days. So basically, they've made a third trip, actually a fourth trip at that point, in order to have access to their money. And it's, I don't have to call or anything to get them a debit card at that point. Apparently, everything's approved and accepted, so that's all I needed. But they didn't say that on the phone. They said everything should be working again. Everything, to me, means everything, and everything should include the debit card. Apparently, they didn't know that, but I figured that out after the first five times they did it to me. So... I would kind of let my customers know, saying, hey, your debit card may not work, so you may want to go to the tellers and withdraw cash just for now until we figure out what's going on. Do apologize. I, I apologized a million times for the bank. Then there were times where not only was the account frozen and then it was told that they would be unfreezing the account, but there would be times where they would take their sweet time in unfreezing the account. Or I would call back and say that they never got that information. They needed me to submit it again a third time. And there were times where I was just mad. I was angry at what Bank of America was putting putting me through. Yeah, selfish James. I was upset about what they put me through. But I was really upset at what they were putting these people through. I was so frustrated. I, I, I There was no level of anger that... Um, I've ever had at my company and they've done some pretty crummy things to me but to leave me hanging on there making me look like a fool several times with the same customers really really rubbed me the wrong way so I had these customers and there was two sets of customers one of them was a family it was a husband and wife and they had a three-year-old and then there was another husband and wife both from Iran and everyone was students and they froze their accounts and this was 2017 and these accounts were frozen for about three weeks three weeks each both of them and i would get these calls i would get these calls james is my account still frozen i would look it up yeah it still has the note on there so we have to wait for it i'll give you a call whenever i see that's unfrozen i would check these accounts every day to see if the documents that i send would finally unfreeze the account and it wouldn't for weeks and weeks and then about i would say 14 days in one of the one of the groups, the one with the kid, they came in and said, "We don't have money to eat. You know, we bought groceries and we had you know diapers and and stuff for the kid, but we we need food. <laughs> we need money to to buy these things." And I called and they said, "Well, we got to submit the documents again." Ugh, okay, whatever. Submit the documents again. Okay, it'd be 24 hours. We'll get their accounts reopened, and then. The next day, their account wasn't open. The account wasn't open. It was still frozen. And these people were crying in my office. And there was, like, loud crying. It was like a, 
you know, you ran over our pet type of cry, and it was, I for the for the rest of my life, I I will never forget how low I felt that I couldn't help these people because Bank of America was basically freezing their money, thousands of dollars in their accounts that they couldn't use, and they couldn't feed their kid, and they couldn't feed themselves with it. I mean, I felt as low as low can be. So I did something that probably would get me fired, and I don't care if I'm saying it now because I'm fired now. I I had just got my bonus uh, for the previous quarter, so it was like late July or something like that, and basically I got paid for quarter two, good amount of money, and I had this cash in hand because I was I was buying something cash, I don't know, but I did have a few hundred dollars in my wallet, which was rare for me because I don't like cash. I gave them fifty dollars. I gave them fifty dollars. And I've never mentioned this to anyone before. And I said, I feel somewhat guilty that this is happening to you. I said, I'm sorry. I don't know what these guys are thinking of. And I try not to call them idiots or whatever. You know, you got to be respectful while you're in an office, especially with the colleagues that you have. They're not my colleagues anymore, so I can say that all the time. I said, here you go. I said, you know, you guys helped me get this. And I'm really glad that I'm, you know, your banker. And I'm sorry that this is happening to you, but... Um, you know, we'll figure it out, get some stuff done, and then um, I'm going to call again later today. So they went, and they got my money, they shook my hand, they were so thankful. And came back the next day, account still frozen, and I said, you know what, we're going to call and we're going to get this done today. And I begged my boss, and my boss was always cool, my manager, my branch manager. She wasn't my boss, my branch manager. And I said, I need to get this done. I said, they've been here all the time, and you know, like it's... It's affecting other business. I said, we need to get this done because no one else is helping them. For three and three and a half hours at least, I was on the phone with risk management, with the old fat idiots, the people with Bank of America, and begging them, saying, here's the documents, here's what I sent, this is when I helped them. I said, I have event history of all the things, all the times that I helped these people, and you guys haven't done it. I said, this needs to get done today. I was like, you know what, it's affecting their their finances, it's affecting our staffing over here at the bank, it needs to get done. I And I was as rude as I could be over the phone, which is rare for me. So basically, just wait there and wait, and they put us on hold, and I knew that they were doing it on purpose, I just felt it, you know. Whenever something like that happens, you know that they're doing it on purpose. And basically, just there, and then they say, okay, we got it working. Can this person use a debit card now? Yes, you can issue a temporary card. Okay, so I give him a card. I said, you know, please go get cash out. Please go get cash out. And um, just in case something happens, I said, I'm not holding my breath with these guys. I said, just in case, just have it ready. And they're like, okay, thank you. Withdraw, withdrew the money. They gave me my $50 back, by the way. There's a zero interest loan. And like I said, I don't care if down the road bank or says, hey, well, you shouldn't have done that, James. Well, you shouldn't have blocked their accounts. How about that? So, got it open, and I just, still, I just remember them crying, saying, we need food. I mean, these are people who are going to be our leaders. These are people who are going to work in industries making a lot of money, and they're going to provide thousands of dollars more to financial institutions because of the the business that they're going to have. And Bank of America just said, yeah, no, we're not going to do it. And that that interaction, that experience just made me just honestly dislike the process. And there were times where I would have customers from Iran 
go to my office and ask me information about opening an account. And usually whenever someone would ask me information about opening an account, I would get them. I would get them right away because my sales skills were so on point that I knew that I would be able to um, attain any customer whenever they came in just asking information because I felt so confidently about my products. Honestly, any time that an Iranian customer went in from that time on to the time that I got fired, I probably didn't help them as hard. And I hate saying that. I hate admitting that because I knew that it could just lead to just these possibilities that Bank of America would just screw around with them. So anytime they would ask for information, I'd give them the information, but I'd be kind of like non-excited about it. Yeah, here's here's the information for the account. Um, just to let you know, there's a lot of good accounts everywhere, so do your research, do your do your homework, and make an informed decision. If I was really wanting that account, say, you know what, Bank of America provides the best account. You know, I know that international students typically deposit large amounts of cash. If you deposit more than $1,500, you're not going to have to worry about any fees. Um, at the same time, you'll get a debit card the same day. You'll have online banking, so you'll be able to hit the ground running with this account. You'll be able to use this account immediately, immediately. And I would get these people all the time. But I would just be so unenthused about helping them. And it wasn't it wasn't because of my feelings about it. Not at all. I, I, I loved helping people from other countries. It was Bank of America's process for Iranians that made me just not want to help. And there was time, and then there was a customer that was really interested. And I just remembered their name because they had a unique name. And I would get calls on my on my direct line and it would have their name on the call ID and I would um, I'd answer and they would say hey are you ready to open an account well I'm actually booked until Thursday maybe you can do it on Friday and then on Thursday they would call and I wouldn't answer and I started ignoring calls I started being the person that I hated the most because I almost didn't want to do it because of all the hassle that I knew that I would go through but more importantly what they would go through with them so I was almost feeling like I was like mercy bypassing them. Like I was just saying, you know what? I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna help you because I don't want you to to deal with all the stresses of that. And I I remember getting that call every day for about a week from them, and I didn't answer, and they left voicemails, and I didn't reply to them, and eventually I stopped calling, and I just remember feeling so low. I'm like I'm throwing away my quarterly bonus by doing this, but at the same time. Am I doing right by not subjecting them through the, the hassles that Bank of America puts these customers through? It was really just messing with my brain at that point. I was, I was just really unhappy. Um, and it was really the worst experience that I had with Bank of America when it came to helping customers because I saw people crying for food in, in my office. And they had thousands of dollars in an account that was frozen because Bank of America said they have the risk of possibly using it in Iran. I don't know the rules technically. I just remember reading OFAC and saying, hey, you can't use a U.S. debit or credit card in Iran and all these other countries. Okay, that's fine. But you know what you do? You block their account whenever they use it in the countries that you say not to use it in. Then they're violating a rule. Then whatever. And, and you know what? Then you can say, hey, okay, well, we, we said you shouldn't do this and you can't do that. And you did, so we're closing your account out. And I know that's part of the letter where they're saying, you know what, we we want to be able to use these cards in our home country. And I agree. I'm not I'm not disputing that whatsoever. Go ahead and use it wherever you want. If Visa MasterCard is accepted there, use it. But of course, the bank has these rules and, you know, apparently they're wanting to enforce them saying, "Hey, if you use this card in Cuba or Iran or anywhere, 
then we're not gonna want to do business with you anymore and th that's the I hate saying it this way, but that's the right, I guess, that they have, no matter how stupid the right is. I under I understand that they want to draw a line somewhere, and that's fine. But you don't block people's accounts before they even do it. You don't block accounts saying, oh, they might do it. Or it's it's possibly a risk thing because they go back to Iran and they may just decide to use our card there. And, oh, my goodness, what a horrible thing. No, that that's where I feel it's wrong, and that's where I'm with NAAC and saying, you know what, it's it's a rule that is there basically to tell people not to bank with Bank of America. It's it's a rule that's there that says, you know what, okay, fine, you can have an account with us, but you can't. Don't even take your card to Iran with you whenever you go because you use that card and we're not going to want to do business with you anymore. I mean, you're threatening someone before they're even opening an account. So, I like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm on both sides of it. I understand why Bank of America says that. For whatever reasons they have with OFAC or whatever, and and I get that, okay, you know, being in compliance, um, you know, with my job as much as I was, I understand that part of it, but at the same time, you can't you can't cry for business and say, hey, you know, we want to open up the most accounts, we want to be the number one bank for you, and then you pick and choose uh, who you help and how you treat them just based on the country that they come from. That's the that's the worst part of it. That that's that's really the part that I just did not like about this situation, you know. And what can I say? It, it was something that I feel so strongly about. And my 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 opinions are influenced by where I grew up. I grew up in a college town. I spent my middle twenties to my middle thirties working in a bank in a college town, and you know a lot of international students, a lot of great people that I met over the years, and. Yeah, I, I, I have a bias to wanting to help them because of the places that I grew up and, and the fact that I was immersed in culture um, in both towns. One of my friends that I went to school with through elementary and high school, you know, she lives in Lebanon now, I believe. She's a woman of the world. She's an amazing person. And I, and I call her one of the few winners of our graduating high school class because I didn't really have a lot of great people coming out of my high school class in 2001. There's probably maybe five or ten people that did anything with their lives of note. And I, I, guess, I would include myself in it because I guess I'm selfish. But um, she's great. And her um, father, Dr. Inal, he was from Turkey. And he's a professor at the university. Just older man, very just knowledgeable, very smart. And I just remember him so fondly because I I just remember he would call the branch and say, Is James there? Yeah, okay. James, this is Dr. Inal. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. Where are you working at? Are you working the drive through window? Or are you working the teller lobby? Well, I'm working the lobby today, sir. Oh, great. I'll see you. I'll see you there in five minutes. Bye. And hang up. And then he would go and wait in line for me and me, me alone. And he would deposit cash into his account. He would pay off... Um, my friend, his daughter's credit card, and he would put money in her account while she was trying to become something of herself, you know. And she's a U.S. citizen, and he came from Turkey, and he was a U.S. citizen as well. And um, great guy. is a really great guy, and he's one of my favorite customers. And he passed away um, a few years ago, and I was really sad about that because he was my first um, experience where, you know what, he, he knew that I was good at what I did, and he knew that I was good at... Um, what I do and he trusted me with his business and I didn't feel that 
my Iranian customers can trust me with their business because of how horrible the back offices were to my customers um, at, from Bank of America. How, how awful they treated them really dictated um, the way that I felt about helping customers from any country at that point going forward because it just seemed like the bank made it a hassle to make it seem like it was a hassle to me to make me not want to help them. That's what it made me feel like, and it just it just took me back to helping Doctor and all, and and helping these people in my life that I really enjoyed helping, but I almost felt handcuffed that I shouldn't help them because um, the bank would just make their life a living hell and make my life a living hell too, and it was just so frustrating. Now coming up on an hour of talking about this, you know. I know a lot of people are going to, and I don't know who listens, what the demographics are for my podcast, because there's thousands of people who listen, but some of, there's some people out there, and I understand, you know, I I think it's wrong, but I understand that, hey, you know, we should only worry about Americans, and we should only worry about this and that, and, you know, if they're from another country, why should they open accounts here, why can't Americans get credit, and these people can I know that there's groups of people like that, okay? In New Mexico, there's people like that, although it's 75% Hispanic. And, you know, it, it's just the way it is. It's sad, the the state of affairs that this world is in, where you, you still have people who think that way. You know, people from other countries are just so... They're so welcoming to other parts of the world because they want to learn. They want to... They wanna, you know, be filled with culture and, and information and knowledge. And it just seems like, you know, Americans a lot of times are the other way around. They don't want to learn about other stuff. And it, it's sad. It's it's frustrating. And, you know, like I said, those ones that say, you know, we should worry about our, our customers and why our kids aren't going to college and why why don't we have this much money in our accounts, whatever. And I'm, and I'm fine with disagreeing with those people. It's your right to say an opinion, no matter how silly it can be. But... This is why you should care even if you don't agree with like this podcast, for instance. So Bank of America started coming out with this, and other banks are doing it too. With Bank of America, I hear about it the most just because of Twitter. That And I enforced this too. I had to ask this question the last year I was working at Bank of America. Bank of America asked the question, do you hold dual citizenship in another country? So if you're a U.S. citizen, but you came from Iran, for instance, you have to... Answer yes, and then, well, what country did you come from? Well, I came from Iran. I felt that that question was meant twofold for two reasons. One, to kind of scrutinize international customers that much more. So if someone came from Iran and they were notated that they're from Iran, they were U.S. citizens at the time of account opening, it feels like Bank of America was doing kind of revisionist history and saying, hey, we think that this person may be from Iran, so let's let's ask this question. That way, if they are, we can ask for additional information just to make sure we're managing risk, whatever the hell that means. I, I, I mean, I really believe that. I really believe that they do that. So, you know, we're asking this question, and I was asking it. And honestly, I stopped asking the question for a lot of people. I, I, I just, first of all, if they're from the U.S., and I knew, I'm just going to do it. Second of all, if they're from another country, and I have valid proof that they're U.S. citizens... Why the hell am I going to ask if they hold dual citizenships? You know what I mean? It doesn't make any sense. You know, um, Steve Nash, one of the best um, basketball players from Canada of all time, is a U.S. citizen now. Am I going to ask Steve Nash, does he hold dual citizenship if I work at Bank of America? 
No, I'm not going to ask him. Why? Because he provided me U.S. documents to say that he's a U.S. citizen. So why the hell do I care where he came from? I know he's from Canada, but why do they need to know that? Whatever. So I really, I really do believe it's kind of saying, hey, well, we think that this person may be from somewhere. So let's ask him all this ID information. And the thing is, if they don't answer the question and it's left blank, Bank of America has the right to close your account and freeze your funds for up to 30 days, sometimes up to 90 days. So they're forcing you to answer the question about dual citizenship. And like I said, it's to find out more information about their international customers. But here's a, here's kind of a, a side effect, I guess, of that dual citizenship question. That affects Americans, even people who don't agree with international students even coming to to open accounts with banks, for instance, or shouldn't even be in this country. Um, you know, those people who think that backwards way. Here's why they should care about that stupid question, too. Because you know what? If you ask someone who is American through and through, they're wearing uh, an American Eagle on their belt buckle, they have a red, white, and blue baseball cap that they're wearing, and they have, you know, the flags on their big, humongous pickup truck with their huge tires, and they play that Lee Greenwood, um, proud to be an American song, you know, on their speakers, you know, full full blast. Why should they care about that question? Because it's Bank of America's way of getting rid of you, too. So that person typically is not going to be a millionaire and going to have, you know, tons of business and get a mortgage and a car loan and, you know, retirement and all that stuff. Whatever whatever life experiences they have is probably not a Bank of America uh, desired experience. So, for instance, if you ask that type of red-blooded American, by the way, sir, I need to update your um, your information on file here. This was me talking to them. I uh, just want to make sure you live at this address. Is that correct? Date of birth is correct. Also, there's a question about citizenship. Uh, we want to know if you um, live or hold citizenship in another country. Nothing could be more offensive to that red-blooded American person than ask them, hey, do you come from somewhere else? No matter the the stereotypical undertones of that question, that is that, that question is so loaded. It's It's really meant to piss that person off. And say, what the hell? I'm American. What kind of what kind of bank is this asking me if I'm not American? You guys are un-American because blah 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 blah. I'm closing this damn account. Bye. Let's get the hell out of here. These are things that happen on Twitter. Like, and the people who complain about the dual citizenship thing, it's probably 75% people who who are that that red-blooded American. I'm proud of my country type of person. The other 25% are people from other countries or people from. At least, you know, different ethnicities or whatever. And the reason they're upset about that is, no, I'm an American and that's all that matters. And how dare you think that I'm from another country? Why should it matter? You know, they, they it's it's weird. But at the same time, people who come from other countries don't mind answering that question because they have to answer them a thousand times anyway. But that to that American citizen and you ask them, hey, do you come from another country? That's offensive to them. And people who who I disagree with about you know international students and citizenship and all and all that stuff you know like I said it's not a political podcast I don't want to get into that crap but the people that I fundamentally disagree with in that should be upset about that too because that question about citizenship is designated to kind of get rid of them too 
there's a specific type of customer that Bank of America wants, and I have no clue what it is because they're alienating great customers like my Iranian-American and Iranian student customers, not to mention the average Joe, the average American middle-class person with not a lot of money in their account, with barely enough credit to survive, with not enough credit to get a home loan that Bank of America doesn't want to do business with either. And what better way to piss them off than ask them, on, ask them a question like they're a gang member in a rival gang. Hey man, where are you from? Are you from are you from another country? Yeah, that person's gonna want to leave too because they're gonna feel offended by that. And and I gotta say, it's a it's a very loaded question, and I feel that it's had this just side effect that I think Bank of America loves that it has this side effect, but at the same time, um, I don't love it because it's it's um, upsetting a lot of people, and it's it's honestly alienating a lot of people from wanting to d deal with banks period and you know i can go on and on but i've gone over an hour talking about this you can tell how passionate i am about this so i'm going to tell you two really quick things and i'm going to go to the commercial break and, and go to the call-in segment here we're gonna have a long podcast here guys um my commitment is this i do want to reach out to the niac i want to write a letter to them um, on behalf of my podcast, on behalf of what I'm doing with this podcast, just to let them know that I, I stand with them um, with what's going on with Bank of America because I I helped conduct business for Bank of America, um, you know, as a salesperson, and I had to enforce these things that I did not agree with, that I felt were wrong, that I felt were discriminatory. So I'm going to send a letter to them just to let them know that I'm supporting their their efforts 100%. I also have a couple of friends that are Iranian that I, I did touch base with once I lost my job because I always had this book project of mine and I do um, plan on exploring it about Iranians and banks. It, maybe it's not going to be a 500 page book, maybe it'll be 120 pages or something. But just ex that experience, the one I told you about the, you know, people were hungry and they couldn't even have money for food because of the account being frozen and the BS that Bank of America put them through. I'm really fully exploring writing a book just about that experience alone and to reach out to them to see how they've been treated by their bank. I don't think they bank with Bank of America anymore. And to basically see what it's like to deal financially as an Iranian student and have to go through these hurdles. Like, is it hard? Like, I want to see it from their perspective. And I don't mind writing a book about it because I love to write. And I got three books already about banking that are coming out. I don't mind doing a fourth. So my commitment to this is that I'm not going to stop talking about this. If something comes up with it, I'm going to talk about it. We'll do a podcast about it. But this is something that needs to be talked about, guys, because once they start asking that question, then they're going to start asking other questions that are none of their business. To my Iranian student customers, my Iranian customers, um, thank you so much for all the business you gave me over the years. I really appreciate it. It meant a lot to earn your trust, uh, just like you did with any other customers. And um, I'm willing to fight the good fight to make sure that Bank of America stops this practice because I know the practice is probably still going on and probably worse um, now with more added scrutiny with every passing year. And and all I can say is, you know, doesn't matter whether you're from Iran or the United States. doesn't matter if you're a student or not. Whenever banks start to ask you questions about citizenship and where you come from, even when you provide valid IDs, when you have to provide document after document of the same thing over and over again in, in, in a way that Bank of America is just trying to catch you in a lie. 
whether it's the fact that banks will freeze your account. They'll make you starve if they don't feel comfortable doing business with you, even though they cried and clamored for your business for all these years. My friends, that is exactly why your bank sucks. My name is James Baca, and we'll have our call-in segment right after this brief promotional consideration, so please stick around. My name is James Baca, the host of the Wire Bank Sucks podcast. The Wire Bank Sucks podcast is looking for enthusiastic and excellent sponsors for the show. Join us on our revolutionary podcast where we discuss things that make banking clients think and act decisively. Yours truly, James Baca, a 13-year veteran of retail banking and sales, can help your business shine through with an effective partnership with my podcast. We have, on average, as of June 2019, 8,000 listeners per episode and growing from all walks of life, a burgeoning follower base on Twitter and Instagram, along with nearly half a million Twitter impressions regularly. Get your business promoted on the most unique podcast out there, Wire Bank Sucks. For more information on sponsorship opportunities, follow Bank Screwed Us on Twitter and direct message. Email james at wirebanksucks.com or please call our voicemail line at area code 575-322-4127. We're looking for the best. We're looking for the greatest. We're looking to help grow your business and we're looking to help grow our podcast. Let's make it happen, guys. Wirebank Sucks looking for sponsorship opportunities. Please call today. All right, and we are back. So as you know, Wirebank Sucks and that bank screwed us on Twitter. Yours truly, James Baca, is fighting a lot of battles for you guys um, against banks. Of course, we're fighting for overdraft fee refunds. We're fighting back for check hold releases. We're fighting back for fraudulent claims that are decided in favor of the bank, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. There's a lot of aspects to the battles that I am fighting with this podcast and my Twitter page. One of them, of course, is going to become my passion project, and that is the war against Zelle. I do not like Zelle, the money sharing service that all banks are implementing in their online banking. It is a really, really awful thing. It's a horrible thing. As a banker, I don't recommend that you use it. And we can get into the details of that again. Um, but I do have a voicemail call, and it's from Olivia. And the reason why I asked her to leave a message on the Bank Screwed Us voicemail line is because it's, it's hard to ascertain what's going on with Zelle whenever someone tells you, someone like me says, hey, it's bad, don't use it. Well... You know, obviously, if I'm saying that to random people, then I must have a vendetta against it, right? I must have a reason why I don't like it compared to someone else who's maybe become a victim of Zell and who can give you reasons for that. Have I been a victim of Zell? Yes, I have in a very small way, but nowhere near the level of victimhood that a lot of customers from banks are achieving, and it's quite scary. So I want to leave it to Olivia to explain her Zell situation. So here it is. My name is Olivia, and I live in Massachusetts. I needed to loan money to someone through Zelle, and I accidentally sent it to my older brother who had overdraft fees, so I ended up paying for his overdraft fees. I was on the phone with at least five people. Bank of America couldn't help because it was processing, so they sent me to Zelle. Zelle couldn't help because it was through Bank of America, so they sent me back to Bank of America, and they couldn't help because it was finished processing. I complained on Twitter, like any young person does, which got their immediate attention. They called me and sent me the claims, and it took about a month to process, in which I got a letter saying that they couldn't do anything, probably because they got their money and they don't want to have to give it up. It's crazy to me that there's no way to get your money back when you send it through Zelle. Once you hit send, there's absolutely nothing that nobody can do, especially not you. Thank you. 
All right, Olivia, thank you so much for the call. I really appreciate it. It's it's awesome whenever you get to, quote, meet someone on, on the Internet, Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and within an hour they've, you know, developed a trust with you. And I asked her, I was like, do you want to share your story uh, to the Bank Screwed Us, Why Your Bank Sucks voicemail line, um, area code 575-322-4127 for you guys. And, you know, without hesitation, she did it. And I'm really glad that she feels so passionately about it that she wants to share her experience with the world. And I really think Twitter is a great place for it. Of course, whenever you um, point out Zell and Bank of America on Twitter, both at Zell Support and at B of A Help are going to jump and say, hey, what's wrong? Is there something we can do to help whenever they already tried to quote help a month ago and nothing ever happened? But Olivia brought up a couple of points which um, I really wanted to have her call because it was something that we haven't talked about with Zal and it's the, oops, I sent it to the wrong person error. And and it's human error, okay? The You know, who ultimately sent the money? Of course, it was Olivia. And of course, anyone who accidentally sends money to someone else it's their fault, quote-unquote, but that's not the point. People make mistakes, and the thing with Bank of America working there is they want perfection. You know, whenever you would, like, I remember a whole year that I was a bank teller in 2000, I think it was 2009, 2010. This is when I became a vault teller for the bank, and I was responsible for half a million dollars. And they said, well, you can't ever be out of balance because you're the vault. The vault is the main you know, the main balance that the bank has. So if you're a penny short or over, then you obviously made an error because there's no one else who has access to that money, blah, 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 whatever. So I remember when I had that, I was terrified of making a mistake. So I, I would check everything three times. I would make sure that the tellers would double check when I'd give them money. And I was 100% the whole time I was vault teller. But I was also a regular teller at that point in time. So... I, it was a it was a day that I was working the drive up and Taco Bell or Burger King or one of the fast food places came through, and they asked for five dollars in quarters. A roll of quarters is ten, so five is half a roll. So I was gonna give them loose quarters. So I gave them one quarter too many. I gave them five dollars and twenty five cents instead of five. I was a quarter short that day. It turned into a verbal write-up off of a quarter because I made a mistake for 25 cents because I gave them one extra quarter uh, to fulfill their bizarre change order request because you're supposed to order rolls when you're a business. I don't know why they wanted $5 in quarters. That's literally, that literally can be like 10 customers they help where all those $5 in quarters are gone so it didn't make any sense. But I got into serious trouble with that and they said you have to be at 100% whenever you're the vault teller. And, and and I understand that, but it's so stupid, and they want perfection. So now they expect that for customers, too, especially with Zelle. And I've said it before, Zelle is a service that they're putting the responsibility of your banking not on them, on you. They're no longer part of it. They're like, yeah, hey, here's this here's this service if you want to use it. But then whenever you use it, they go, well, you know, it wasn't a bank thing, so you shouldn't have done it. And what happened with Olivia was she needed to send money to someone else. So, you know, she's scrolling through, and if you have Bank of America, Zelle, you can see your phone directory in there, and you can see, you know, who you've sent to send Zelles to before, and she wanted to pick someone, so she's going looking for it, but she accidentally sent it to her older brother. Now, I don't know her older brother's life story, but she mentioned that 
he was negative in his account. That's a likely story for a lot of people because there's a lot of people who, when they overdraft an account, they're not necessarily paying it right away. They're like, man, I got to wait till I get paid again. I got to wait till my ship comes in, essentially. And sometimes accounts will stay negative for 30 days. So she accidentally sends it to them. And, you know, this little hiccup that we have in our brain just kind of, it kind of happens. It happened to me, okay? So I remember I was in Vegas about a year ago with with my wife and i i don't drink usually like you know normally but i will have drinks when i'm in vegas it's just to enhance the experience as we all know so you know drinks are not free in vegas anymore by the way so you don't just get free drinks from playing slot machines no you got to really be playing in order to generate these little coupons that give you a free drink so basically you're spending 10 15 dollars a drink just sitting there playing and it's ridiculous. So I said, well, I'm going to pregame it. We're, you know, one of the things we do whenever we go to Las Vegas is we go to a liquor store and we buy a couple of bottles for the room. And a lot of the times the rooms will have refrigerators or maybe they'll have dual sinks and we'll just throw some ice, you know, into the sink and throw our bottles in there. You know, that's just what vacationers do, especially when in Las Vegas. So we alternate, you know, who pays for what. So it was, you know, her turn to pay for the liquor purchase. And I was going to transfer her what I owed her for that, you know, going half, halfers. So I'm drinking, I'm there, and I'm literally, you know, on my phone trying to do my banking and pay her for the drinks that I'm having. And I go to Zell. And usually I'll break it down. Like, so if, if she buys me a soda for $2.50 at Sonic Drive-In, and then she buys me a bottle of whiskey for $20 at the liquor store, well, I'm going to put $2 for Sonic and then $25 for whiskey, whatever. So I send the $2, and then I'm, I'm sending it to her, and I said I sent it. And then she looks at her banking maybe 30 minutes later and said, I never got it. I was like, what? So I look back, and there's only four people that I've ever zelled, and three of them I worked with, and, and at that time I worked with all other three people that I had on my zell. And I sent it to my manager. So I sent it to my manager, and it said, you know, $2.50 for Sonic, and it opened up this whole can of worms where she texts me and goes, James, LOL, are you drunk? <laughs> Why are you sending me money? And then she sends me the two dollars and fifty cents back, and that opens up a whole can of worms. You know, that's my that's my boss. What if I was joking around and said, "Hey, this is for sex toys, or this is for, you know, I I paid I paid for the hour with you, so here's a hundred dollars." What if they are watching and all of a sudden I accidentally send this thing, and then you know Bank of America goes, "Oh, what's going on here?" No, it's crazy. And, and and like I said, the reason why I bring this up, and it's just buried deep in my brain because I just remember this distinctly, was I could have easily sent her $25. I could easily sent her $100. If it was you know the mortgage payment, I could have sent $500 plus through Zelle to my wife and I accidentally sent it to my boss. She has no responsibility to give that back to me. And that's what Olivia's point was. So I'll get to the last part next here. So basically, she she called and filed a claim, and they gave them they gave her a month. You know, they give you up to forty five days to process everything, and they gave her a month. And then it says, um, yeah, we can't do anything about it. Um, there's no way the transaction was completed. And there's no way to reverse it. And then of course her words is, you know, it's crazy to me that there's no way to get your money back once you send it. 
so they're wanting perfection. They're wanting you to be perfect 100% of the time, just like being a bank teller, and that's just not right. So the person who receives it, her brother, has no responsibility to give it back to her, even if she said, please send it back to me. And the bank is not going to say, hey, oh, she made a mistake. Okay, let me just pull this back out. Let me put it back into her account. No, they don't do that. In fact, they said, well, when it's completed, it's completed. And one of the reasons why I hate Zell is because of that. Whenever fraud happens, whenever it's not people that she knows, she's buying concert tickets to go see Ariana Grande or something, and then the guy, the scammer, says, oh, send you know $300 to this Zell email address, and then I'll send you the digital tickets within 10 minutes. Well, she sends the, the money to that email address for the tickets. All of a sudden, that the crook receives it. Then he goes to his Zelle, whatever, if it's his personal account or if it's another account that he stole. You know, he changes the email address from I love Ariana Grande at yahoo.com to I love Ariana Grande 22 at yahoo.com. I don't know why 22, I just made it up. And all of a sudden, I love Ariana Grande at yahoo.com is gone forever. And whenever, whenever she calls and says, hey, I got ripped off of Ariana Grande tickets, two things. One, that email address doesn't exist on Zelle's system anymore. And two, they're going to say, you sent money to someone who wasn't a friend, a family, or someone that you know really well. So we're not responsible for any fraudulent transactions that happened because of that. And that freaking sucks, okay? that That's just horrible. So... If she was manually typing in an email address or a number, something that has happened according to the Twitter complaints that I see on here all the time, that person receives it and they are set up with Zelle or they get the alert saying, hey, so-and-so sent you money. All they got to do is rig up Zelle, they retrieve the money, and that's the end of that. There's no, there's no paper trail. It's one confirmation number that means nothing to Zelle except for filing purposes. It doesn't mean anything to you, and it doesn't mean anything to the bank, you know, that you deal with. Because, of course, um, you know, different banks offer Zelle. It's like 100 banks now that offer Zelle. And it's just really crappy. And, you know, whenever something is done, it shouldn't just be done forever. And you know how you have those pop-ups, like, on your phone sometimes? Whenever you change a setting or... Whenever it says, do you want to open up this hyperlink from Google Chrome? Or do you want to use Twitter's app to do it? Or do you want to use Samsung Internet? And then you hit the button and it says, just once or always. Always is kind of a long time. So those prompts are important to say, hey, well, just once. Because I may want to try something else in the future. Well, things change. And there should be kind of a... And, and I know instantly is the way things are going in this world now. At least have a 90-minute grace period where you can pull it back. Hell, even when you buy something on Amazon, it gives you kind of 90 minutes to make a decision saying, Oh, damn, I went a little too crazy on Prime Day, so I better cancel this. Zelle doesn't do that. And as Olivia mentioned, you know, she called and she filed the claim. I don't know if they gave her temporary credit or not. I didn't ask. But she says it took a month to process the claim. The reason for it taking so long is what they do is they kind of bleed the time. There's only a certain amount of time that banks have to investigate a claim. So what they do is they wait till the very last couple of days, very last days sometimes, they decline you and you have no way of reinstituting the claim or appealing it. So basically, you know, this is basketball before they had a shot clock. If you're winning the game with three minutes to go, you can dribble the ball and just keep on dribbling it. No no one's fouling you. No one can do anything. 
There's no shot clock to change possession, and you're there just running the clock out. That's what Bank of America does, and I know other banks are doing that too. But I, I wanted to talk about this in depth because this is going to lead to basically an admission of me too. So I didn't file claims on behalf of customers at Bank of America. I, that's not my job. That's not the department that I worked at. So whenever someone had a claim, you call the claims department, and you're not even supposed to be a part of that conversation. You put them on the phone. The phone people will you know, work through it and file the claim on their behalf, give them a claim number, the whole nine. So anytime someone would go into the bank with a claim like this, I would be dialing the 1-800 number while still talking to them because I would say, you know what, I'm, I'm not the person for the job. There's someone on the other end who's going to take care of that claim. And I couldn't wait to get those people out of my office. And I'll tell you why. Because I set the stage that that's the person that you're going to yell at if something goes wrong. And I used to tell people that. I say, you know what? These claims, a lot of the times, they don't go in your favor. So if you get the person's name that you talk to on the phone, if you have something that's going on, you let, you let them know that you want to talk to a manager or whatever. But I couldn't wait to get them on the phone because I knew that it was going to end bad. And I wanted, I wanted that customer to say, hey, well, I can't believe how crappy Bank of America is, but that James, he's a real go-getter. He really felt passionate about helping me. And even though I got screwed, well, at least James is a good guy, and, and he tried to help me. I did that on purpose, I, and, I, and I'm sincere about it. I hate that people got ripped off, but I was sincere in the fact that I wanted them to get a chance to get their money back. And I almost kind of knew that Bank of America would find a way in the end to just pin the blame on the customer because they're like, well, what are you going to do? Close your account out? We don't want you anyway. You have like $50 in your account. And, and you know, it's, it's just really frustrating. And that's kind of the way that Zelle and big banks kind of operate. So uh, one last point with Olivia's call. She mentioned that she was on the phone with five people with Bank of America. So most of them said, hey, go to Zelle because, you know, it's it's a Zelle transaction, so Zelle should be able to help you. So she calls Zelle, and then they said they can't help because it's a Bank of America transaction. And then Bank of America said they couldn't help because it's not it's still processing. So you need to talk to Zelle again. So that's the game that they play. It's uh, We have no responsibilities. We bear no responsibility for the actions of that other company. They're merely a third party. You know, and... I'll use a dumb analogy. I'm a huge pro wrestling fan. And one of the things that um, people who love pro wrestling who are really upset with pro wrestling about is the lack of responsibility when it comes to pro wrestlers getting injured. And, and the language that pro wrestlers have in their contracts make it to where they're really getting royally screwed. So anytime a wrestler breaks their arm, breaks their leg, breaks their neck even, and there's been a couple of those... Guess who has to pay for the hospital bills? The pro wrestler, because they don't have insurance. Not through the company anyway, not through the wrestling company. So basically the wrestling companies list the the athletes as independent contractors. So as being an independent contractor, as I kind of am with my sponsors, for instance, you're responsible for paying your taxes and paying your social security and your health insurance and all that. And guess what? They're not going to pay it. So whenever you break your leg... Not only are you out of work, you're having to pay that money out of pocket. So that's the way kind of banks are treating Zal. They're saying, well, 
however you spend your money is your business but whenever it comes to using Zelle if you're spending your money that way we have no responsibility of the end result and that sucks it's just really really bad that they do that because you don't have any trust at that point and and I think when I reach out to a lot of people on Twitter about hey why isn't Zelle helping me or why isn't Bank of America helping me or Wells Fargo helping me because I got scammed through Zelle why aren't they helping because they set the expectation that the banks are always going to be there to help you. In fact, you know, that's the whole selling point of opening an account at a bank is them saying, hey, you know, we're going to be there for you even when times are tough. Now they're really not. And and this and Zelle is an excuse to just find another way to avert responsibility. You know, and it really stinks because as time goes on and we become less less likely to have human interaction. We're trusting these systems, these things that banks put in place to kind of help us. And what's really crappy is they're not really there to help us. They're really there to help them. And should something go wrong, well, they're thinking of the bank first and foremost and then the customer second. So being punished for something that is, yes, her mistake, but also satisfying the overdraft fees of another person in another bank who had absolutely nothing to do with this transaction that Olivia was doing, it's just wrong. And there needs to be, you know, I, I want Zell eliminated totally, but there needs to be at least 30 to 90 minutes of a, oh crap, I didn't want to do that, so let me let me try this again or let me cancel. Because Olivia forever is going to remember this. Customers who get burned through Zell will always remember Hey, I remember Zal doing this, and I remember the bank just essentially telling me to go screw off. It's it's really, really bad. And, you know, she mentioned complaining on Twitter, like any young person, old people do it too, by the way, would get immediate attention. It's because they want to talk to you. They want to send you, you know, B of A help and Zal support, send you a, a direct message, a private message, to get those public posts out of the out of the search, like how I troll Bank of America and Zelle, you know, comments through the search. So if they say, hey, private messengers tell us what's happening, they're not there to listen to you to help you. They're there to just make sure you're not saying that crap in public because much like yours truly, James Baca does, he's trying to make a point and he's trying to lump in as many people as possible saying, hey, this crap is wrong and this crap needs to stop. So, you know... Whether it's Zelle just averting responsibility for their processing service, not allowing you to retrieve money that was accidentally sent to someone, whether it's Bank of America saying that it's Zelle's fault, and whether it's Zelle saying that it's Bank of America's fault, whether it's Bank of America basically telling you after a month, hey, um, sorry, there's nothing we can do, and there's no way to appeal this decision, and you're stuck between a rock and a hard place my friends that is one of the reasons why your bank sucks my name is James Baca and I'll be right back to wrap it up right after this brief promotional consideration why your bank sucks listeners this is James Baca the host of the why your bank sucks podcast inviting you to join us on patreon that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash why your bank sucks for as little as one dollar a month you can help support the podcast which helps us pay the bills Take care of our responsibilities and allows yours truly, James Baca, the ability to work full-time battling big banks with this patented version of Vigilante Customer Service. 
The Why Your Bank Sucks podcast not only discusses what is wrong with big banks, but it also lends a hand to clients in need who are being taken advantage of by bigger banks such as Bank of America, Chase, Wells Fargo, among others. For $1 a month, you can show your support in the battle for better bank service. We also have bonus podcasts and content along with merchandise at the $2, $5, $15, and $35 levels. And you also have the ability to donate what you think we are worth. PayPal is also accepted, but I prefer to show strength in numbers by going to patreon.com slash wirebanksucks to support this podcast. We would love to have you as a patron and love that you're allowing James to work full-time kicking the butts of big banks. Thank you so much. All right, we are back. So once again, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I felt so strongly about the Iranian student thing, the citizenship questions that I really needed to do a podcast about. And I'm really glad for the NAAC actually posting those tweets and that open letter to Bank of America to allow me to remember what exactly was going on and how I had a hand in it and how I really want to help kind of expose what is going on with this so uh to them thank you so much for that but thank you to my listeners for listening to this long podcast i really wanted to get that call segment in as well because of course we're still fighting the battle with zell as well patreon.com slash wirebank sucks donate at least two dollars and you get additional podcasts five dollars gets you merch thirty five dollars gets you a t-shirt every couple of months uh, please check out at Bank Screwed Us, our official Twitter and Vigilante Customer Service on there. At James B is right, my personal Twitter account. WireBankSucks.com has past episodes, um, discussions about our philanthropy, that what we're going to do for charities once we start to get rolling, um, and of course other information as well. Uh, two books coming out immediately. It's going to be Bank of America Nearly Made Me Homeless and I Work There and Beer Money with other books to follow, possibly one about... Um, the Iranian uh, bank situation as well. Um, it's really important to me to share these stories. It's why I do this podcast, and I'm so thankful that I have you know thousands of listeners and um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 600,000 Twitter impressions, people viewing uh, what we're doing as a project. means a lot to me. It means a heck of a lot. I'm really glad you guys are paying attention because i got a lot to say, and I'm not going anywhere. This is something I, I feel passionate about and I want to do, and I'm really, really glad that I'm able to do it. I also wanted to thank Olivia for the call-in segment with Zell. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate you sharing that information. Uh, the Wire Bank sucks. Uh, customer complaint line 575-322-4127. You can leave up to a three-minute voicemail, and I will air it on the podcast. So once again, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being a part of this project. I really appreciate it. Uh, my name is James Baca, and I just told you why your bank sucks. So thanks so much, and we'll talk to you early next week when we air the Brian Moynihan Fox Business News interview. Have a great weekend. Goodbye.